Well, good morning again. Uh, welcome to Silver Creek. We're thrilled that you've decided to join us online this morning. Uh, thank you so much uh, for making that a priority each week and joining us here. Uh, we are in our series that we started a couple weeks back called Choose Joy. And what we've been doing is we're, we're looking through the book of Philippians at, at what would be described by some as the, the most positive, most joyful, the happiest book, if you would say, in, in the Bible. And this morning, what we're going to look at specifically is we want to look at the pathway that you and I can choose that will lead to joy, the pathway that will take us there. So, so let's pretend for just a second that we could go down to the mall and interview random people that wouldn't freak out that we're interviewing them in the middle of a pandemic. Right now is the wrong time to sort of do the man on the street sort of a thing. So let's just imagine. Let's imagine that if we were able to go down and interview some random people, and what if we were to ask them, what is the path that leads to joy? What do we think people would say? In fact, in the chat, really quick, post what you think the most common answer would be to the pathway that leads to joy. And I'm not looking for the right answer, because I'm going to give that to you here in just a second. I'm looking for what would you say would be the most common answer that people would say would be the pathway to joy? So people might say some stuff like, Education. Education is the pathway to joy, or, or the right job, or maybe it's getting married. Maybe it's having a family. Maybe, maybe it's about making enough money and having enough money. Maybe it's about having a really nice house. Maybe it's about retirement. Whatever it would be, what, what do people come up with? What would people say? What would, be the, what would be typically people's answer for the pathway to joy? And the problem is, is whatever we're coming up with in that list and the things that I just listed there, the problem is we can always point to people that have those things and oftentimes have many of those things, and yet still it has not led or been the pathway to joy. Within the Bible, we actually find the pathway to joy, and the pathway to joy is probably something that, that on our own, in our wildest imagination, we would never reach this on our own. Because ultimately, the greatest pathway to joy is when you and I choose humility. Now, even if you've grown up in church and it's not a surprise to you at all that humility is the pathway to joy, we're all a bit hesitant when we hear that. When I say the pathway to joy is humility, we all want to be like, eh. humility doesn't lead to joy, right? That doesn't really add up. And here, let me give you an example of how it doesn't add up. Let's say you're at a party, and you're at the party, and you walk over to the cupcake table, and at the cupcake table, there's one cupcake left. And there's more than one person that still wants that last cupcake, and you're one of those people. Humility would say that I'm going to think about the other people that want that cupcake and allow somebody else to have that cupcake. That doesn't necessarily sound like we're choosing joy in that moment. But really what we're going to see this morning is that one of the strongest reasons is that humility leads to joy is that humility will reduce the conflict in your life. Humility will reduce the number of fights in your relationships. And it'll be difficult sometimes to choose joy through humility. But you'll be able to begin to experience less conflict because ultimately the best defense of conflict is humility. 
So this morning, we're going to jump in to Philippians. We're going to chapter 2. We've made it to chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. And I've been challenging you over the last couple of weeks to dive into this and to begin reading it every week. And, and if you've been doing that, great. I think it'd probably take you about 20 minutes. And if you haven't been doing it, I would encourage you to jump in and kind of begin to have a greater understanding of this book of Philippians. So I would challenge you to start reading that just one time each week between the times that we're together. But in this passage that we're going to read this morning, what we're going to see in the first couple of verses, we're going to read that unity creates joy. And then as we move through it, we're going to begin to see that it's humility that begins to create unity. And then in the last verses, we're going to see that Jesus modeled both of those. So as we read this, I want to challenge you to listen for the mention of unity and for the mention of joy and then begin to see the example that Jesus sets. Let's read. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 says this. It says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tender tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now the writer of this is a guy by the name of Paul. And Paul has helped actually start this church in the city of Philippi, and so now he's writing this letter as an encouragement to the church that he helped start. And what we saw in the first couple of weeks is Paul is not only writing this book about joy and how to discover joy in your life, he's writing it while he sits in prison for preaching about Jesus. And Paul begins to write on how you and I can experience joy and what it can look like in our life. And at the very beginning of this passage, Paul begins pointing out that you and I, we choose joy by being united around Jesus. It's around Jesus that we begin to find joy. And he begins to talk about how it's humility that will lead to this unity and this unity that will lead to joy. And if you and I are going to choose joy, it begins when you and I are pursuing unity around Jesus. And Paul actually lays out for us, he begins to show God's model for relationships in our life, God's model for our marriages, God's model for all of our friendship focuses around four different kinds of unity. He sets the theme right there in verse 2. In verse 2 he says this, he says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. These are four types of unity that he rolls out right there. He rolls out these four types of unity that God wants to see in every one of our relationships. And the more of these four types of unity that you see in your relationship, the more unity and the more joy and the better that relationship will be. He says, be of the same mind. Mental unity. Basically, thinking around the same things, united in your thinking. He says, share the same love, emotional unity. He says, be united in spirit, spiritual unity. 
He says, be of the same mind. Basically, there he's talking about be intent to the same purpose, directional unity, headed in the same direction. I mean, imagine for just a second your relationships, if they have each of these different types of unity at place, in place. I mean, if you have one of those, that relationship's going to be pretty good. You get two of those, it's even You get three, you get the quadfecta. Is that a word? I know trifecta, quadfecta. If you get the quadfecta, not only do you get to say quadfecta, maybe that's a bad word, I don't even know, but the joy will be so great. But oftentimes, one of the reasons that we don't experience joy in our relationships is that we don't choose to be united around the the things that God says will lead to that and these words that Paul has given us. And the reality is that if you and I are going to choose joy, it means you and I are going to have to begin doing my part to reduce the conflict and create the unity. Now, it might be hard to believe this, but I'm going to give you some things this morning that if you and I will begin to do these things in our lives, it is guaranteed to work. I, I don't give a lot of guarantees, but, but I guarantee you, without a doubt, if you begin to do these, these will absolutely begin to reduce the conflict in your life, and you will begin to see joy grow and unity in your life will begin to happen. But even with that guarantee, I need to give you three warnings. There's three warnings that we need to understand that if we are going to do the things that I'm going to talk about this morning, there's some things that are going to happen. But there's some really good news about these warnings. They are nothing like the pharmaceutical ads that you see on TV. Like, are those warnings not the scariest thing ever? Like, if you try this drug, you'll get itchy skin, and your hair may fall out, and you may have intense diarrhea. It's like, ah, I think I'll stick with what I got going on. But the good news, nothing to do with that this morning. So the first warning is this. If we do these things, we need to recognize that this is 100% counter to culture. What we're going to talk about this morning is exactly opposite of everything that we've been taught. Which is so odd because it's so different than everything that we've taught. And we look around at so many people that are living opposite of this and their relationships are terrible but it's because we don't tend to follow what God is telling us to do when it comes to our relationships. And ultimately, this is going to be opposite to what culture tells us we should do. Second warning is this. It's just not going to feel natural. It literally will not feel right. The things that we're going to talk about this morning, we're naturally going to say, nah, I think I want to think about myself. I think I need to worry about my needs. But we have to be challenged on this. And then the third warning is this. If you attempt to do these things, you will be tested in them this week. Just a warning. Like if you decide, God, I want to do this. I want to begin to reduce conflict in my relationships. You will get to practice this week. It might actually be that God gives you the opportunity to practice these habits in your marriage, in your relationships, in how you deal with kids, the way that goes at the office, you will get to choose joy and practice humility, and God might give you that opportunity. It also might be that that Satan, our enemy, is going to want to tempt you, to make you feel like, ah, it's wrong to do, it's too hard, it's too difficult, I can't live through humility, it doesn't, it's gonna, it's not gonna work, it's gonna backfire. Now, if I haven't scared you away yet, and I, I, there's still a few people in the room at home. You might be like, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out, X, X. Okay. 
Let me give you four ways that we can begin to choose to reduce conflict and begin to create unity in our lives. And the first choice is this, is to avoid pride being your guide. No matter what the relationship is, no matter the situation, never allow pride to be what guides how you respond. I mean, think about this. Every single sin, every, sin, every way that you and I can break relationship with other people is ultimately rooted in pride. Every conflict that you and I have with another person is all wrapped up in me thinking about me or you thinking about you. Literally, we as individuals, we have an I problem. Not an I problem, we have an I problem. I, 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 I. Quoting the great philosopher, Veruca Salt, from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, she said, and I quote, I want the world. I want the whole world. I want to lock it up in my pocket. It's my bar of chocolate. Give it to me now. And we all know how it ended for her. Right down the bad egg chute. She allowed pride to be her guide. It was all about her. It was all about what she wanted. It was all about her getting that. And the people in the room are like, is that really? Yeah, she said it. You can go look it up. It's on the internet. Oh, she went down the bad nut shoot? Are you sure? Uh, yeah, you're, you're in the new game. I'm going old school. I went old school. I went old school. Sorry. Sorry, old school. You got to go back to Gene Wilder for that one. Anyway, uh, culture tells us it's the opposite of this. I mean, think about it. it it's, the, it's the arrogant athletes and the most celebrated entertainers and those people that we, that we, we all put up on. They get the most money. They get the most followers. They get the most attention. And oftentimes, they're the ones with the most pride, and our society just works that way. Listen to what Paul warns us in verse 3. Paul says this. He says, do nothing. Wait, let me try that again. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or from vain conceit. Don't do anything. Notice all the wiggle room he gives there? Don't do anything. Don't do any, if there's anything that you're doing in your life that has selfish ambition or vain conceit, he says, stop, don't do it, it's gonna lead to conflict. These two areas will cause problems every time. So let's break them down a little bit further. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is where I say, what about my needs? And what about my wants? And what about my fears? And what about my success? And what about my career? I mean, unfortunately, we all know about individuals that, that have walked away from a marriage because it was standing in the way of their career. We, we all know about people that have been dating somebody else, or we've seen this situation where somebody starts dating somebody else because the other person looks really good, and if I can be dating that person, and if I can be seen with that person because they look really good, it's going to make me look really good. Guys, just want you to be honest. Just, just raise your hand if you're pretty sure that your spouse started dating you because you helped her look better. Fellas, eye candy, anybody? Just in the chat, if you, guys, if you know that you are the eye candy, I just, the, the band's like running for their phones. They're all like, hi. Selfish ambition, it's like, how will this benefit me? We're going to jump out of the book of Philippians for just a second. Jesus' brother, James, actually wrote about this. James said this. He said, wherever there's jealousy or selfish ambition, you will find confusion and every other kind of evil. 
Selfish ambition will lead to confusion in the workplace. And selfish ambition will lead to confusion in the office. And selfish ambition will lead to confusion in your home. If there is confusion in your home, the chances are that selfishness is on the rise. Selfish ambition will cause confusion and evil everywhere, in our marriages, in our politics, in our church, in your homeowners association. Literally, it's the idea of, if you won't play ball the way I want to play ball, then I'm going to take my ball and go home. It's all about me. And then also we have to deal with vain conceit. He says, do nothing out of vain conceit. Vain conceit is essentially the attitude that I'm always right. Vain conceit is I'm always right and you're always wrong. And if you don't like my definition of vain conceit, you're wrong and I'm right. I'm right. Here's what it says in the New Living Translation. It says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Don't try to impress others with how much you're right, how much it is that you know. And here's the tricky thing about about being selfish or, or vain conceit is that nobody can really call you out other than yourself. I mean, sometimes we can guess and we can look at somebody and we're like, ah, it seems like they're kind of selfish. But really, ultimately, each of us are the only, you, you yourself, me, myself, we're the only ones that can know if our motivation behind our decisions is driven by selfish ambition or vain conceit. But if you think about the times where you've been in conflict, if you think about the times that you've been in an argument, my guess is that you can point to or see that, that one or both of the parties were thinking about the personal benefit to themselves, and that's what caused the problem. Or one or both of the parties was saying, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm usually right, and you're wrong. It's those things that ultimately lead to this conflict in our lives. And if we want to experience more joy, if we want to have more conflict avoided, it's recognizing that we're not going to allow pride to be what guides our actions. And the second thing that we're going to do if we're going to choose joy to be united around Jesus is we're going to choose to be humble. And the good news is that the fall hurts a lot less from, from there. Right? Every, everyone cheers when somebody gets knocked off their high horse. Right? Maybe that's an old saying. But here's the good news, and I'm scared of horses. If you never get on the horse, you can't fall. That's good news. And if you're not humble in your relationships, your relationships will begin to fall apart. And literally, humility is one of the greatest foundations to a great marriage and to a great friendship and to being a great parent. Humility. Humility is not acting like I know it all, but I'm going to treat you with respect. I'm going to give you honor. So oftentimes, we'll hear somebody say that, that marriage is a 50-50 deal. It's not. If you want a healthy marriage, it is not a 50-50 deal. A good, healthy marriage, a healthy relationship, it's me giving 110% and you giving 110%. That's when a relationship really works. And then Paul wraps up this verse that we just started off where he says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then he wraps it up and he says this. He says, instead, be humble and give more honor to others than yourself. Culture tends to teach us, I got to look out for the best for me. I got to think about me. I got to think about what's best for me and my family. I got to think about what's going to make us happy. You know, our, like, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's us. It's, you know, like, if you think that, oh, I'm thinking about my kids all the time, essentially that's thinking about yourself, right? Like, if my kids are happy, I'm happy. So, like, if you're thinking, well, I always just think about my kids, okay, well, let's, let's make it bigger than that, right? Like, think about others, and Paul says, be humble 
and give and honor others. And this idea about humility, it's, a, it's a really oftentimes a misunderstood quality. Oftentimes people think that, that humility is saying, well, I'm no good, I'm nothing, I'm zero, I can't do anything right, oh, shucks. That, that's not humility, that, that's false humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking about yourself less. Oh, who's a tweeter? Anybody a tweeter? That's tweetable right there. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking about yourself less. And the more that you think about other people, the more humble you will become. So when you walk into a room, what is your thought? When you walk into a room where you're thinking, well, I sure hope everybody thinks about me and notices that I'm looking good and I want, hope everybody in this room comes and wants to take care of me. That, that's lack of humility. Humility is walking into a room and thinking, how can I help everybody else in this room enjoy the moment the best? How do I make everybody else in this room feel good about who they are? Taking the focus off of myself and putting the focus on other people. Humility is thinking about others. People that are humble build other people up. The greatest people that you know are people that make other people feel great. If you want to have a problem with having too many friends, if that seems like a thing that you would want, if you would like to have too many friends, think about other people. I guess on the opposite side, if you don't want to have very many friends, think about yourself. Next choice, if you and I are going to choose to become united around Jesus is choose to listen and pay attention to others. If you want joy, if you and I are going to choose joy and relationships and have our relationships be better, we have to fall back and begin to learn that old art of paying attention to people. Because here's what's happened. We have been trained because of our technology, because we have so many things, we have been trained to pay more attention to screens than to people. Okay, I'm going to get myself in a little bit of trouble here for just a second. Just a side note to all of you Apple watch wearers. When you check your watch in the middle of a conversation, we all know you're not checking the time. Okay, secret's out. We recognize that in the middle of this conversation, somebody that isn't standing directly in front of you has sent you a message, and you've decided to check that rather than listening to this conversation. Also, if you happen to check your phone or check your watch for the time, it's clear you're just bored with the conversation. So either way, even if you have an old school watch. The problem is our technology, our, our, our AirPods that block everybody out. And just, I mean, like I got them and they're great, but they give us such a great opportunity to stop listening. And we have so many ways to not pay attention to people that we simply aren't listening. We aren't paying attention anymore. Verse 4 says it this way. It says, don't be interested only in your own life, but be interested in what concerns others too. Real quick, this is not saying that we just give up everything about who we are and we stop pursuing things. It's simply saying, listen, you're going to pursue what's about you, but, but be interested in what's going on in other people's lives. Don't just be interested in your own career. Don't just be interested in your own agenda. Don't just be interested in your own hobbies. Be interested in what's going on in other people's lives. Be interested in other people's needs. 
And I mentioned from the beginning, this is not natural. We don't naturally care about what other people have to say because what we have to say is going to be so good. My joke is going to be so funny. Just finish yours so I can tell mine. Our natural response is not to care so much about what other people are interested in. I know what I'm interested in. Why don't you be interested in what that is? But we have to begin to figure out how to pay attention to what's going on and what the concerns are of other people. And honestly, as I read this verse, I think this verse is one of the strongest verses that you and I should be considering when we're trying to determine whether or not racism is actually an issue that we should be responding to and whether or not we actually have a responsibility to it. Because the reality is there are some other people that are telling us that it's a problem. And those other people are black people. And black people are telling us, they're saying, we are concerned because we're seeing our friends, we're seeing our family, we're seeing our community be mistreated and oppressed and killed. And our natural response is we want to push back and we're like, yeah, but I have needs and I have rights and I, I, I need opportunities and I have a story and, and I haven't always had everything go easy in my life. And Paul is saying, if we focus our, on our attention on ourselves, we will miss out we won't experience that true joy. But instead, he's saying we need to listen. We need to pay attention to the concerns of others, which will ultimately help us choose joy. And really think about this. What's the worst thing that could happen if we stopped to listen and if we stopped to learn and we stopped to actually attempt to understand the concerns that are being expressed around racism? The worst thing that could possibly happen is, let's say it happens to not actually be a problem, which it isn't, okay? I'm not saying that. But let's just say that the whole thing is made up. Let's just say the whole thing is made up, but you and I take an effort to be interested in other people's concerns. The worst thing that could happen is that you and I might be overly nice to people. The worst thing that could happen is that you and I might end up caring too much. The worst thing that could happen is it might actually cost us a little. I don't know about you, my life has been so blessed, and my guess is that your life has been so blessed that it might be okay if something costs us a little bit. And the amount of conflict in your life will begin to plummet when you begin to take interest and you begin to care about the concerns of the people around you. In fact, it will begin to make it very easy to be at peace and to know joy when you lay your head down on your pillow at night. And then the last choice, if you and I are going to find joy, is uniting in Jesus. Around uniting in Jesus is that you and I need to check our attitude. Now, if, when you were growing up, if you had very many parents or adults around you that ever said to you, hey, you need to check your attitude. If that was you, like me, I'm not on the chat, so I can't. Just, just type in checked. Like, if you ever had to check your attitude. Like, like, I remember growing up, my parents or those around me would say, young man, you better check your attitude. Young man, that's, that's enough of that attitude right there. So, so in the chat, if you ever got to check your attitude, just, just type in checks. And, and maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. But if a parent or if an adult ever said that, then just, just mention that. But here's the difficult thing. Every time that I was challenged to check my attitude, I tended to think my attitude was exactly where it should be. 
right? If I was being punished and they said, check your attitude, I'm like, yeah, my attitude is I'm ticked. And if I was being told I couldn't do what I wanted to do, and they were like, well, you better check your attitude, I'm like, well, my attitude is frustrated, so I think I'm spot on. Right? I'm like, if you want me to check my attitude, I think I got it nailed. It's exactly where I want it to be. Because the thing is, it's so easy to think that the attitude that I've picked is justified. It's so easy for us to think that it's okay to think about me. It's okay that I make sure I get mine, that I don't miss out, that I don't have less, that I make sure I have whatever it'll be so that I'm happy. It's this idea of people, this is where we tend to live, where our attitude is all about what's best for me and for those that are close to me. Paul gives us this great warning in verse 5. He says this, he says, your attitude should be, that, be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So consider what would happen in every situation. Consider, again, if in every conflict, if you would consider and choose the same attitude as Jesus, how would that change that situation? If you're in the middle of a problem, what would his attitude be? If you're in a moment where there's an individual that, that's feeling guilty about something that they did or did something wrong, what should your attitude be? What would Jesus' attitude be? In every moment, maybe somebody is worried about something, what would the attitude of Jesus be? What would the attitude of Jesus be in your office? What would the attitude of Jesus be in your next Zoom call? What would the attitude of Jesus be when you're on the golf course? I actually had to give up golf because I answered that question and it was not good. And I was rarely lining up. So I'm like, I don't think he'd be this ticked. What about when you're driving down the freeway? What would, and somebody runs you off the road, what, what would the attitude of Jesus be in that moment? If we would choose to continually check our attitude against the attitude of Jesus, it will transform how we respond and we'll begin to see ourselves pursuing more unity and joy rather than finding ourselves in difficult, defeated, bitterness situations. Now, now the simple out of this is to say, well, I don't really know what Jesus' attitude would be. I don't know his attitude. How do I check it against you? I don't know. So I guess it's not possible for me to check my attitude. Well, I got some good news I'm about to tell you, so no longer can you say that. So let me give you really quickly what an attitude check means. Because fortunately, in these next verses, we see what it is. Because ultimately, an attitude check means this. First thing is, is, is I begin to recognize that I don't demand what I think I deserve. Like, you might deserve it, but you don't demand it. That was the attitude of Jesus. He never demanded what he deserved. And we tend to think that we deserve a whole lot. And when we don't get what we think we deserve, we begin demanding it. And when that clerk doesn't give us the customer service that we know we have a right to, they're a jerk, and now I'm going to demand it. And I'm going to post something really mean on Yelp. Jesus didn't do that. Listen to what it says in verse 6. It says, Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He emptied himself of all he had. Jesus is God. He comes to earth. He becomes human. He is still 100% God, and yet he doesn't demand his own rights. He empties himself. And if you thought I was getting myself in trouble earlier about the Apple Watches, this might get me more. This is so backward to how you and I have been brought up, especially if you've been brought up in America. We have brought, been brought up with the idea that I have rights. 
It is my right to do this. It is my right to have this. It is my right. And yes, in America, we have all kinds of rights. And I'm not saying that we don't have rights, but it doesn't mean we have to demand them. We can stand for them, and we can speak to them, and really, it is your right to demand your rights, but every time that we do that, we have to recognize that when we demand our rights, that attitude is not the same as Jesus. Demanding ultimately makes other people resistant. Demanding ultimately makes other people attack. Demanding ultimately puts us at odds with others. And it's not how Jesus responded. And if you ever want to check yourself on where you land on this, Pay attention the next time you go out to eat. Just, just watch how you treat the server. Now, the reality is, if you're watching, you'll probably do pretty good. But, but just maybe pay attention to how you want to respond. Consider how you would typically react with that type of service, or if they forgot to bring you the refill of fries, or whatever it would be. Check and see, am I more understanding, or am I more demanding? And for those of you that are currently in a dating relationship, this is an amazing way to get a read on that person. Go out to dinner, have somebody serve, be a server there, you know, bring your food, and pay attention to the attitude of the other individual. Are they demanding of what they deserve? Because if they are demanding of what they deserve in the restaurant, it won't be very long before that leaves the restaurant and it eventually becomes displayed in your relationship. Second idea, if we're going to have an attitude check, is I have to look for ways that I can serve. I have to look for ways that I can serve others. I just tell you, next week is going to be so awesome. I, we, I'm so looking forward to pack the house. Um, Elizabeth and I, again, we had the opportunity to go out this week. We interviewed 13 different families. We got another family sending in their videos. We were talking all about what has happened during COVID. And one of the topics, one of the things that we talked about is how have you been able to serve during COVID. And a lot of people were like, I haven't been able to serve. And as we started to peel it back more, we're like, oh, no, they have. They were like, oh, yeah, I have been serving. You're not going to want to miss the interviews. I'm not going to tell you what they said right now because you won't come back. But you're going to want to be here. In fact, if you're planning to be here next week for Pack the House, in the chat, would you just say, count us in? And if you weren't planning to be here next week, change your plans and say, count us in. And if you happen to know of a friend that considers Silver Creek to be their church, but they, they haven't been joining us online, and maybe they just need a little bit of encouragement to join, we just send them a note and say, man, we're doing Pack the House. Come check it out. It's going to be great. And part of what we're going to do next week is we're going to hear about the way that so many people have found ways to serve. And this is what Jesus did. It says this in verse 7. It says, Jesus took on the nature of a servant, becoming a human just like us. He was serving he was serving by becoming a human. He was serving us so that he could ultimately die for us. And our culture says the goal is to get as many people serving you as possible. Really, it says the more people that are serving you, the more important that you are. And God's value system is the exact opposite of that. God's value system isn't about how many people are serving you that makes you important. God's value system is that the more people that you serve, the more important that you are. And we can practice this. This is the great thing, is this is a habit that you and I can develop in the small things. We can develop, this isn't, this isn't something that we have to develop with big things. We can do little things. And right now, a lot of us are going for walks in our neighborhood. And as you're going for a walk through your neighborhood, let's say you see some trash on the ground. 
What an incredible opportunity to serve those around you simply by picking up the trash. Because nobody's going to know that you did it. Or you and I have the opportunity to be like, well, somebody else can pick that up. I mean, that's a little beneath me. I mean, I shouldn't have to pick up the garbage. I mean, don't we pay people in the city to pick up the trash? My hands might get icky. Do you know one of the beautiful things about hands? You can wash them, right? Like, I heard this incredible story about Dan Cathy. I think I got his name right. Uh, he's, one, he's the CEO of Chick-fil-A. And Dan Cathy was meeting this other individual at one of the new restaurants that they were about to eat, one of the new Chick-fil-A restaurants that they were just about to open. And so they met, and they were looking at the building, and they were checking it out. And when they were done, they decided that they were going to go get some food next door. They were actually going to go next door to Taco Bell. That was, so they left the, the, the Chick-fil-A that was about to open, and Dan Cathy, they went over to Taco Bell, and they went into the restrooms, and they were doing it, and, and the one gentleman was at, you know, using the restroom, and as he came around the corner and he walked over to the sink, Dan Cathy had taken a bunch of paper towels, and he was wiping down the sink of, Chick, of, of Taco Bell because he had noticed it was dirty. He had decided that he was going to serve, and his friend was like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I noticed it was a little bit dirty, and so I thought, man, I should... I should leave it better than the way I found it. He was literally cleaning the restroom of his competitor, and he chose to serve when he didn't have to. Third way that you and I can check our attitude is that we choose to do what's right even when it's painful. Jesus literally did everything right, and it led to the most painful death we could ever imagine. Here's how it wraps up. It says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. This will cost us. If you choose to live a life of humility, if you choose to value others, if you choose to serve, if you choose to do the exact right things, there will probably be some pain. It might cost you some things. It costs Jesus' life. But Jesus, being the ultimate model of humility, was then rewarded by God in the ultimate way. The last couple of verses says this, Because of this, God exalted Jesus to the highest honor and made his name greater than every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will one day bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and give glory to God the Father. You and I choosing to be united around this, around who Jesus is, and striving to follow the example that will reduce conflict in our life, that will reduce the fights that we find ourselves in, will ultimately bring us joy that cannot fully be explained, but can only be experienced when we begin to live this out. And it requires you and I choosing to do our part to reduce conflict, to choose to be united around Jesus, and it will take effort and it will take consistency, but you won't regret, regret what it leads to in your life. And every week we put some next steps for you to choose, some next steps that you can begin to apply to your life that allow you to respond and determine for yourself what you need to do based on what it is that you've heard this morning. So as you think about this idea about humility, about thinking of others, what's your next step? Maybe your next step is to evaluate what I look to be united around other than Jesus. Is there something other than Jesus that you're looking to be united with other people on? Or how can you make it more about Jesus? Maybe your next step is to consider where pride is guiding your actions and your decisions. 
Maybe your next step is to intentionally begin to slow down and listen and become aware of other people's situations. And maybe your next step is to daily check your attitude and see if it lines up with Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, thank you so much for your example. Jesus, uh, we recognize that humility is not necessarily easy. We recognize that humility does not necessarily come naturally. Jesus, would you help us to begin to consistently check our attitude and begin to check if it lines up with who you are, if it lines up with your attitude? Jesus, our desire in life is that we would experience joy. And would you help us to recognize that a part of choosing joy, of finding that joy, is to begin to reduce the conflict that we experience in relationships and with those that we interact with. Jesus, would you help us to trust that this way that doesn't necessarily seem natural, that doesn't necessarily seem to fit with our culture, that this way will ultimately lead to less conflict, to better relationships, and to ultimately a greater sense of joy. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you care about us. In Jesus' name, amen.